Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. Got a question for you. Who would you want to have for dinner? If you could have anyone for dinner, who would it be? You know, it's kind of interesting. I was uh, reading the news on the my phone a couple weeks ago, and it, you know how every once in a while they'll put in some kind of advertisement slash article, and it's like the most popular people to have for dinner. And I thought, well, this has got to be interesting, and. I popped on it, and because I know next to nothing about pop culture, I never recognized any of those names. I guess they're movie stars or rock stars or influencers, but uh, they were people that were oblivious to me. But then there was a thing that said, who of all time is the most popular dinner guest? And I thought, well, this will be interesting. You know who the second place was? Leonardo da Vinci. You know who the first place was? Jesus, yeah, so glad people want to have Jesus for dinner. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, what would it be like to have Jesus for dinner? I mean, we clean the house when the grandkids come over. Can you imagine cleaning the house when uh, Jesus is coming? But then I sat and I flipped it around and I thought, I wonder who Jesus would want to have for dinner. A whole bunch of people say they want to have Jesus to their house. Who does Jesus want to his house. It's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5. We're, uh, when we started this Matthew series a few weeks ago, I told you, warned you, that sometimes we're going to take big chunks. Uh, today we're going to take the biggest of those chunks. We're going to look at actually Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So right here, here's your homework. Please go home and read it. Please go home and read it. If we were to read it all, it would probably take all of our time. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. What's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Well, it's actually the Sermon on the Mount. This is that, that body of Scripture that, inclaim, that includes the most uh, famous sermon that's ever been preached. Now, what's been going on? Okay, we, we've done several sermons so far on Matthew. And essentially, we're just looking at his public ministry. We skipped the introductory stuff about his birth and the wise men and Herod killing the babies in Bethlehem. We just started right into his baptism, the temptation. And last week, we saw that Jesus' initial ministry, kind of like a, uh, a politician would launch his campaign... And Jesus was going around and doing the work of the kingdom. He was the king, offering himself as the king, doing the work of the kingdom. And he did that. And all along the way, he would stop and he would preach to the people. And when you get to chapter 5 of Matthew, look at this. Verse 1 says, And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, 
And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying. And then from verse three on all the way over to chapter seven. Verse twenty seven. That's a sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me let me just let me just talk about this for a minute. okay? Because this by far has got to be, you know, all Scripture is great, but this has got to be probably the greatest passage of Scripture as far as we are concerned because more books, more articles, more sermons have been preached, written, explained about these three chapters of Scripture than almost any other passages of Scripture combined. I mean, this is it. I mean, when, when you go to the Bible and you want to know what is it that Jesus taught, this is it. Uh, it you know, you can ask, you know, we're kind of moving into a post-Christian world. Some people would say we're already there, and we probably are. But, you know, back when people were a little bit familiar with Christianity. What is it that Jesus taught if they were to say something? You know, and I'm not talking about people that grew up in church or went to church. I'm just talking about the average Jack out there. If you asked them, what what is it that Jesus taught? There was a very good chance that what he came up with, what was mentioned, what was told you would have come out of these three chapters. I mean, this is it. This is like the, the Magna Carta. This is the, the Constitution. This is, this is uh, you know, if, 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 if there was ever a great Christian doctor, uh, document, this is it. This, this, is, this is where Jesus told us kind of the core of how to live. Now, before we go a little further, let, let me just, let's talk about what it's not. This is not a recipe as to how to get to heaven. You know, we all, you know, just because we're human, we all think that, you know, work harder, get more, all that stuff. And and it's just so easy for us to slip into this work salvation, works grace type of uh, notion. And so many times people will read this and it's like, man, this is what you got to do to get into heaven. I'm wrong. That is not why Jesus was preaching this. This is not why Jesus explained these things to us. He wasn't giving us the steps to heaven. Salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, period. And what Jesus is saying here is something different. This isn't also, it's not, here's God's standard of righteousness because I just want to rub your nose in the fact that you could never live up to this. I mean, this is God's standard of righteousness, you know, as a, how you live it out. But God didn't have, Jesus didn't preach this so that we would feel bad. He preached this so that this is something we would aspire to. Uh, this is a guide as to how to live. Here, here's really what it is. Okay, let me just set the this, this stage. We've already talked about this a couple times. Jesus is the king who has come to 
offer his kingdom to the nation. All of the Old Testament had looked forward to this kingdom. You know, when, you know, the lions and the lambs got along, when the little children can play next to the snake holes and not get bitten, when a person dies at 100 years of age and people say, what a shame, he's died so young. I mean, the, many of the effects of the curse are reversed because Jesus is reigning as the king over this kingdom that is the throne of David. And uh, Jesus is offering that. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, here's how kingdom citizens are to live. This is, this is the expectation that Jesus as king has on his citizens. Here's how they're to live. This is the, this is the standard of righteousness. This is the manifestation of practical righteousness. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is in a nutshell. Now, just stay with me a little bit more. Okay, let's think about this. We're smart people. We should be thinking smartly about the Bible. Jesus said all this stuff early in his ministry as he is offering the kingdom. But because hopefully we know the rest of the story, we know that they never put him on a throne. Instead, they put him on a cross. They rejected his kingdom. So what did Jesus, what happened instead? He was crucified, died, buried, rose again, went back to heaven with the promise that someday he will come back again and then that kingdom will be inaugurated. Matthew knows all this stuff. Actually, his readers, just like us, knows all that stuff because when did Matthew write this? Jesus preached this, let's say, in 31, 32 A.D. Matthew's writing this Sometime 20, 30 years later, he's writing it to people who know the kingdom was rejected, that Jesus left, that Jesus has promised to come back, and that's when the kingdom starts. So what is Matthew including this for? How is he wanting us to understand it? Why is this stuff important for us to know? It's because He's basically showing us how we, as kingdom citizens of a kingdom still to come, future, how we're supposed to live here and now. So that's why I've titled this, and I think it's a a, a great title. John MacArthur's book on the Sermon on the Mount is entitled Kingdom Living Here and Now. It's it's not that, oh, this is the kingdom. There There is an element to the fact that the kingdom is here now. But there is still yet to be a kingdom, a literal kingdom, like what was promised in the Old Testament, and it's still coming. Well, how does Richard Hornock live in 2022 as a citizen of the United States and, you know, trying to slug it out and do things the way God wants him to do it as a an American. How am I supposed to live? I'm supposed to live as a kingdom citizen here and now. That, that, that's essentially the way you and I are supposed to take these three chapters, this sermon. 
You know, something else I was going to say just uh, by way of uh, of uh, introduction in. And that is Jesus probably preached the content of this thing many, many times. It didn't, this isn't just one sermon. This is this is this is a sermon he probably preached dozens of times in various locations. This was the significant time, and this is the one Matthew recorded for us 25 years later. But Jesus said these things a lot. So that's why if, if when you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find him saying that, these same things, in different settings. And it's not because Luke and Matthew disagree about whether Jesus preached it on a mountain or whether Jesus preached it on a plain. He preached it many times. So, you know, I've decided I'm going to just start repeating my sermons and work on my golf game instead of preparing time. So just give me a heads up. Jesus did it. I can do it. So not really. That's a bad joke. And it's the only joke of the day. So if you don't laugh now, you don't get a laugh. So help yourself. Okay, what did Jesus say? Basically, Jesus had three things to say. And I'm just going to give them to you right here. They're right at the beginning. They're on the back of the bulletin. Jesus told us, as kingdom citizens, we're supposed to think righteously, we're supposed to live righteously, and we're supposed to choose righteously. The first several verses are all about having the right attitude, having the right mentality, thinking correctly. The Apostle Paul talks, often talks about having the mind of Christ. That's kind of what it is. Okay, look, look at your Bible. This is in chapter 5, starts at verse 2, goes all the way over to verse 16. Jesus started to teach, and here's what we read. See from verse 3 down to verse 11? These are what we call the Beatitudes. Why do you call them the Beatitudes? The Latin word for blessing is beatitude. We get the word English word beatitude from that Latin word. It, it, it's the blessings, the beatitudes. Uh, the Greek word that is being used here is actually maybe better translated happy. Not happy, you know, boy, that was a funny joke and we just are giddy, but happy as in you know, real contentment, real joy, deep-seated peace. And so what did Jesus do? And we read them. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You can see every one of these is worthy of a sermon. And almost every sentence in this entire sermon is worthy of a sermon. You know, and when I laid out this Matthew study, you know, a couple months ago, I thought, okay, I'm only going to do one sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, just because otherwise we'd be in Matthew for, you know, forever. But I'm making a promise to you. We're going to come back and we are going to do a whole bunch of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we're just doing one so you can get the big picture, the three big points. But see what he's saying there? He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit because they're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They're going to be comforted. They, they, in other words, as you go through these various aspects of life, these various situations, these various circumstances, you can, with a kingdom perspective, 
handle them. Why? Because you got enough guts and gin it up and the strength and all that stuff? No, because you've got that kingdom perspective. He's the king. I want to be his citizen. I want to live a life that is totally pleasing to him. And so when things go south, I recognize that the king knows things are going south and he's going to be gentle and kind and patient and understanding and gracious to me. I mean, skip down. Blessed are those, verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted. I mean, we hardly even understand what that means in our country. Although perhaps we're moving towards a time like that. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. What can you do? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad because your reward is in in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's he doing? He's talking about the kind of attitude, the thinking that we ought to have. And this is why you need to go home and really take some time to read this. If you're not currently reading through the Bible, and you want something to read, let me just tell you, today or tomorrow morning, take the next several days to just slowly read through this sermon and think about all of these things that he is saying. Because there is so much here. Verse 13, he said, understand, think properly about who you are. What does he say? You're the salt of the earth. And if you lose your saltiness, you're not going to be good for anything but to be asphalt. To be the the stuff you throw out on a path. You're the salt of the earth. You as a kingdom citizen, we as, as, as citizens of heaven living here in Texarkana in 2022, we're the salt of the earth. And you can sit and play with that analogy exactly what did Jesus mean? Are we here to create thirst for righteousness? Yeah, probably. Are we here to make life a little better, seasoned, more palatable? Yeah, probably. I mean, you could think of all these things and probably Jesus meant all of them. That's the beauty of a great analogy. And Jesus was the greatest teacher ever to live. Look at verse 14. He said, you're the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill. Don't don't hide your lamp under a bushel. No, what do we do? We're supposed to shine. Are you shining for Jesus Christ? If you're a kingdom citizen and you're in that office, you're in that factory, you're at that mill, you're in that neighborhood, you're in that home, are you shining for Jesus Christ? Are you, are, do people look at you and because you are illuminating how life should be, their walk, their life, their journey is, is better because the light of your life is helping them? Or are you more of a distraction? What kind of advertisement are you? For Jesus Christ. You got to think correctly about 
who you are. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify you. No, glorify your Father who is in heaven. So these first 16 verses are all about thinking righteously. Thinking righteously. Do you have the mind of Christ? Are, are, are you, is your mind set on things above or is it consumed with the things of the earth? Sure, we've got to take care of the things of the earth. Sure, we've got to take care of the details of life. But there is a way to take care of the details of life in light of heaven. And there is a way to take care of the details of life. And we are enslaved by the things of the world. What, 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 what are you? What am I? Are we thinking righteously? A kingdom citizen thinks righteously. You know what else a kingdom citizen does? He lives righteously. She lives righteously. Now, this is obviously the, the main core of the message of Jesus' sermon because it goes from verse 17 of chapter 5 all the way over to chapter 7, verse 20, or verse 12. And what Jesus is doing here is he starts off and he has to do some corrective work because the, the people of his day... They had the Old Testament. They had Genesis through Malachi. But they were totally whacked off, whacked out in, in how they interpreted it. And basically what Jesus, you know, many times when they'd listen to Jesus and he'd be expounding the Old Testament, they'd say, this guy doesn't even believe the Bible. This guy doesn't even believe it. And he's like, no, I didn't come to abolish it, to say, oh, hey, there's a better way. I've come to help illuminate what the scriptures really mean. And so that's what he says there. Verse 17 down to verse 20. And then in starting in verse 21, he starts pointing to some very specific areas of life where they took what the Old Testament had to say and they, you know, did a number on it. And reinterpreted it so that it made them feel better or didn't challenge them. I mean, isn't that a great thing we all do? I know the Bible says that, but. And then we come up with an interpretation that makes it so that we're fine. We don't have to give more. We don't have to change. We don't have to go do this or this or this or this. It, it, it just affirms us in our status quo which usually is kind of a complacent, carnal, sinful status quo. And we, because we have brilliant minds, we can take the Word of God and twist it around to, to do anything and everything that will keep us on the couch instead of challenge us. And that's what they were doing. So what does Jesus do? I mean, first off, he talks about murder. Verse 21, you've heard, it said, heard that it, the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable in the court. Well, that sounds good. But let me tell you, here's what it really means. Verse 22. But I say to you, and that everyone who is angry with his brother is guilty before the courts. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which is just a, a slang for, man, I'm going to kill that sucker. They're guilty 
before the Supreme Court. You fool! You say that? That's worthy of hell. That sin is what Jesus is saying. I thought, well, that was good. Look what he says about uh, morals. Look at verse 27. You've heard it said, hey, don't commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. So anything up to the point of adultery is okay. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, but I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman to lust has committed adultery already in his heart. Man, if your eye offends you, makes you stumble, gouge it out. Throw it far from you. Better to be that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to end up in hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. There isn't any part of your life that is worth compromising you. Get rid of it. And what does Jesus do? He goes all the way down through that. Verse 33 starts talking about agreements, contracts, vows, promises. You know? You know, we all make promises. If you're married, you made promises. If you've entered a body a house, you've made promises. If you've opened a bank account, you've made promises. Most likely when you got your job, if it was a job that, you know, had some stuff to it, they probably made you make some promises about how you were going to conduct yourself and how you're going to treat the assets of the company and so forth. Well, what are we supposed to do with those things? Well, they were totally messing those things up as well. Look at verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Jesus said, Do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt and let him have your coat too. I mean, all of these things, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, my citizens, even though they're living here on this side of the kingdom, They live as kingdom citizens. It all keeps going on all the way through chapter 6. What are some of the topics he talks about here? He talks about giving, talks about praying, talks about fasting, talks about motives. Skip all the way over to chapter 7. Talks about judging, criticizing. You know, we all love to do that. We're all pretty good at that. What's he say in verse 1 of chapter 7? Do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it shall be measured out to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, there's a, log, a beam protruding out of your eye. You hypocrite. And we all do that. We all all do that. We can find fault, criticism in anyone. We can do it in our spouse. We can do it in our kids. We can do it in our parents. We can do it in our co-worker, our employer. You know, you name it. 
We can, we can criticize the best of them. And what is Jesus saying? You know, he's not saying don't, don't judge, don't have an opinion, don't help a person and point out error. But he's saying, boy, you, you had better make sure you first examined yourself. Get that log out of your eye. And then if you still feel the need to help that person with that speck of dust in their eye, you can. But boy, most of the time you're a hypocrite. I love verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 7. Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. For everyone who asks receives. I mean, he's just kind of wrapping it up. This is how you live righteously. As a kingdom citizen, God has called you to think righteously. He's called you to live righteously. What exactly does that look like? That's what this sermon is about. It's really what the rest of the New Testament is about. And that's why at least some of your homework is to go home and actually read this sermon. To understand what it says. And to dig it out. And then to continue to read the commentary on this sermon. We call it Romans through Jude. Okay? Romans through Jude is basically a commentary, pretty much, on this sermon. And a few other things. But a lot of it is about this sermon. How a believer in Jesus Christ lives the practical, godly Christian life. And so look at chapter 7, verse 13. Like a good preacher, Jesus calls them to make a decision. And if you start reading in verse 13, it's like this or that. Narrow way or broad way. This gate or that gate. This path or that path. Choose wisely. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is the easy way. The gate is wide. And the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many who are those who enter by it. That's, that's the popular gate. But the gate to the godly Christian life, the righteous life, the way a kingdom citizen is supposed to live, is through the narrow gate. It's kind of interesting if you just think consistently, logically, he's not saying, here's how you get saved. It's not through the narrow gate that you get saved. It's through the narrow gate that you live the Christian life once you are saved. Salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. He's saying, here's how to be a kingdom citizen. Here's how to live as a kingdom citizen. The way to live as a kingdom citizen is not the broad, wide, popular path. It's almost always the very narrow, hard path. And so sometimes I think we need to remember that because many, many times we're like, you know, why is it so, so difficult to live the Christian life, to be a godly parent, to be a godly spouse, to be a godly employee or a godly employer well the answer is a huge answer but it's spiritual warfare we've got an enemy satan 
And he is doing anything and everything he can to complicate the thing. And that's why Jesus said, it's going to be tough. You've got to walk through that narrow path, go through that small little gate. It's, it's like it's a bunch of hard decisions. As far as the world is concerned, to live this godly life. Get to the very end. Verse 24 tells a story. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them. He's been talking about the choice. You're like people that build houses. Let me tell you, wise people build on the foundation of the rock, the word of God, the truth of God. Foolish people do not. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to the wise man who built his house upon a rock. That's verse 24. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them. And again, who's he talking to? He's talking to us believers, us kingdom citizens. Are we in 2022 going to live as kingdom citizens or are we going to think we can ride two horses at the same time? Are we thinking we can have dual citizenship and do okay? We can please this life. We can also please God's life. Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh, my way trumps everything. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against the house and it fell. And great was its fall. And can I remind you one more time? That's not written to unbelievers. It's written to me. It's written to you if you're a believer. Unbelievers, sure, they'll totally collapse. But there's a lot of believers who, who, who have not invested their life in correct thinking and in correct living and they've, they've callously and carelessly chosen the path of life that was not righteous. And Jesus is saying, when the floods come, when the rains come, when the winds blow, when life doles it out, which it will, you're not going to stand. And, and, you know, interestingly, That's the last thing Jesus said in this sermon. Can you imagine? I mean, the last thing he said to that multitude of people that wanted to know what he thought about what it means to be a kingdom citizen here and now, he said, you don't do this, your life will collapse. And he walked off the stage. That's the end. The last word of this is fall. Collapse. Cave in. It's a stern warning. You and I have have a choice. Will we live as kingdom citizens here and now?
will we take the righteousness that is found here and, and, and seek to flesh it out because we have trusted Jesus Christ and we are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're part of his kingdom. Because if you don't, collapse. You know, that's where Jesus ended. I want to go back and take the other side of the coin. You know, I think that many, most, maybe even everyone in this room is a wise person, wants to be a wise person, has made those difficult choices, has chosen that narrow road. Not always. We've all messed up way too many times. But but you're here because I want to do that. I, I You've called me to choose wisely. And Lord, I'm here choosing wisely. I'm trying to do it. And I guess what I wanted to close today was with this. Hang in there. Hang in there. I mean, it is a war that we are fighting now. I mean, I don't think that it is, is uh, you know, just random that, that Jesus put so much of his stuff into the imagery of war, of, of kingdoms in conflict. I mean, folks, we're in a war. And if you're here today and you have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, you are a kingdom citizen. Yes, the kingdom's coming, but here and now, you're supposed to live as a kingdom citizen. And it is hard. It is hard because you're constantly having to go through the narrow, unpopular, goofy-looking gate to walk the path of righteousness. And I just want to encourage you. That is the way of righteousness, and that is the way of reward. Because go back up to verse 25. Because you have built your house on the rock. And you want to build your house on the rock. And I trust that even this week, the construction you do with your life will be upon the rock. Here's what you have as a promise. The rains are going to descend. The floods are going to come. The winds are going to blow. The burst again, they're going to burst against your house. It will not fall. Because you've been founded upon the rock. Life is hard. Anyone that says it isn't hard just hadn't lived enough long. They'll, they'll get there. It is hard. Why is it hard? I mean, that's just. We've got to take that up with God when we get to heaven. Couldn't you have made it just a little easier? He'll say, well, no, not really, but you don't have enough time to listen. Uh, I mean, he's made it hard. He's made it difficult. There's disappointment. There's hurt. There's anguish. There's, there's opportunities that get lost. There's, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. But let me tell you, when you build your house, when you build your life on the truth of the word of God, and you pursue his kingdom. You get to those storms. You'll stand. You'll stand. 
And I just want to encourage you to hang in there. Hang in there. Because it is, it is tough. And Jesus knew it was tough. But you've chosen wisely. So keep choosing that narrow gate. Keep walking that hard path. Because that is the path that pleases God. And God says, in the end, I'm going to take care of you. Your house isn't going to cave in. Let's pray, okay? Father, I, uh, I just pray that today you would help us who know you, who love you, who care enough about our relationship with you to come and take an hour and a half to sing and pray and recite your word and listen to your word taught uh, to remind ourselves of the story of the gospel. I pray that, Father, today you would help us to grab it and hold on to it so tightly. Father, we acknowledge it's so tempting to uh, build our house on sand. It's so tempting to go through those big open gaps that are filled with lots of people. But Father, I pray that uh, we would be people that are so committed to thinking and living out your righteousness that you gave us through Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you for that promise that uh, we will stand. Father, if there's someone here today that really has never trusted Jesus Christ, I've been talking about being a kingdom citizen, but truth of the matter is they're not a kingdom citizen. They're still just a citizen of this kingdom. I pray, Father, that today they would trust in the one who came to save, the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. Father, help them today to receive in faith what Jesus Christ did for them. Father, I thank you that uh, your son offers salvation. And uh, Father, I pray that if there's someone today that needs to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they might do so today. We thank you for our salvation, Father. We thank you that he saved us. Not by our good works. Not because we chose to step up and try to live this sermon out. But because by his grace, we have been saved. And we thank you for that. And I pray, Father, that today we would have the... Uh, motivation to again this week go build a house on that rock for it's in Christ's name